This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This is Global News. I'm Bailey Nicholson. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says he's never seen anything like the devastation from flooding in Grand Forks, B.C. during a visit to the community on Sunday. He says funding will depend on the extent of the damage, but the province stands with the community. There needs to be a long-term commitment to this community and this region. And as a province, we're saying we're going to be there and standing with the people in this community to make sure that commitment follows through. Emergency officials are forecast a second wave of flooding for the community where about 3,000 people have already been evacuated this week. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer says he's spoken to a Manitoba MP who yelled it's not a right in the House of Commons on Wednesday when the issue of abortion came up. But Scheer isn't confirming what he said during his conversation with Ted Falk who made the controversial comment after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised his government would always defend the right of women to have an abortion. Scheer has said he's personally against abortion, but told reporters in Quebec Sunday he respects the court's decisions on the matter. Quebec New Democrat MP Christine Moore says allegations of sexual misconduct against her are a total lie and she'll fight them in court. Moore says she intends to bring a defamation lawsuit against former soldier Glenn Kirkland, as well as several columnists who reported on the matter. Kirkland says Moore sent him explicit messages and even a arrived unannounced at his Manitoba home before he forcibly told her to stop. But Moore says she and Kirkland were in a romantic relationship between June and October of 2013. A legal expert says convictions in sexual crimes are hard to achieve because of barriers posed by the legal system. Last week, a Nova Scotia judge acquitted a teenage boy of sexual assault, saying while he found the alleged victim to be credible, the boy's denial of the allegations raised a reasonable doubt. The girl said a sexual encounter with her then boyfriend when she was 15 years old was initially consensual, but when she told him to stop, the 16-year-old boy refused. Retired Dalhousie University law professor Wayne McKay said these types of cases are complicated since they're difficult to prove, but that the judge has a legal obligation to not convict when they're left with a reasonable doubt. Homes around the latest fissure to open up on Hawaii's Big Island are being evacuated as experts keep a close eye on the Kilauea volcano. Marcy Gonzalez reports popping, exploding, and sloshing sounds can be heard from the fissure as far as 1,400 meters away. This is nowhere near any home, but that lava is spewing 40 feet in the air. It is so powerful, you can feel the vibration from this eruption. Most of the lava outbreaks have occurred in and around the Leilani Estates neighborhood, where molten rock has burst through the ground, destroying more than two dozen homes and resulting in evacuation orders for nearly 2,000 people. And it was a dream come true for a 12-year-old girl from B.C. who got to serenade an entire arena during Pink's Vancouver concert. Victoria Anthony started a campaign online asking the artist to let her sing at the concert. Little did she know it would become a reality. It was so incredible. Um, this 
support or like the way that everyone kept was singing along um, for the chorus and some of the verse, but I think it was really cool getting to see that support. Over to sports in the NHL playoffs. The Washington Capitals won 6-2 against the Tampa Bay Lightning Sunday night. And in the MLB, the Boston Red Sox beat the Toronto Blue Jays 5-3. From the Global News Desk, I'm Bailey Nicholson. Welcome back to this special program of Mother's Day, celebration of Mother's Day here on the Sunday Night Health Show. Uh, in this half of the program, we're going to be talking about mindfulness for multitasking moms who have time to do everything except it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and, but that's true. Uh, you might be very busy and wanting to do so much, working inside and outside of the home, and uh, but not able to bring it down, to focus, live in the moment, and enjoy the moment. Um, so Renee Rechschaffner of Inward Meditation is going to join me at uh, the bottom of the hour, around 9.30 PST, <laughs> uh, 10.30 or 11.30. Um, also going to be talking about marriage with a British royal wedding happening across the pond. Half of Canadians say marriage is not necessary. How, how do uh, Harry and Meghan Markle feel about that? But I want to talk about, I'll give you some of the statistics on that, but I want to talk about is a happy marriage even possible? And what are some of the expectations that people set themselves up for? And I also want to talk about intellectual humility in this hour of the programming, because I think that is a very important aspect of how we are, how we work, how we bring ourselves to personal relationships. And are you having a problem with intellectual humility? How humble are you? Uh, what What is that about? Why do you feel that you have to know everything? But let's start with the marriage thing. Um, marriage is tough Let, and, and for anyone who's been married. <laughs> Not the easiest game in town. Uh, lots of things can happen. People can change. Uh, you may marry the wrong person. Uh, there, You may have financial issues that you can't handle. There's so much around marriage. And half of Canadians, according to this recent poll by Angus Reid, think that marriage is not necessary. In fact, we are decidedly lukewarm on marriage in Canada. The poll found fewer than half, 47%, said it is important to them that a couple plans to spend the rest of their lives together, that they get legally married. Slightly more than half, 53%, say marriage is simply not necessary. That said, a majority of the view that getting uh, hitched is a more genuine form of commitment than living in a common law relationship or living in sin, as they say. <laughs> well, that's interesting because probably a lot of people think people live in sin um, because a religious ceremony was also important uh, to Canadians. Uh, but, you know, many, many people um, did actually um, get married under, um, in a religious service. Um, but the poll, also, the poll also found that Canadians favor treating marriages and common law relationships identically when it comes to taxation and assets and hopefully health care and all of that kind of thing. So, so that's a good thing. But, you know, I think sometimes 
marriage uh, is is an issue for a lot of people for a number of reasons. There are, you know, expectations around marriage. I often say people expect to get married and they expect to have great sex for the rest of their lives, but nobody's going to talk about that. In fact, um, I had a patient in my clinical practice and she is in her 70s and she is dating somebody who's 40 years younger. I was like, he he couldn't just be your son. He could be your grandson. (laughs) Anyway, he wants to marry her. He's asked her to marry him. Um, She doesn't want to get married again. She, she's already been married. uh, And uh, her, she was divorced and then her second husband, husband died. Uh, So she's a widow, but you know, the one thing about marriage is that people change. We know this in theory, but you're, when you're dating somebody or, um, and then you marry them and, you know, all of a sudden marriage does a whole lot of things to a lot of people. Some people can become super responsible. I've heard people say that, you know, the guy that they were dating was just amazing. And then two weeks into the marriage, he was just abusive and screaming at them. And, um, and so a lot of people think they got to get a raw deal. Also, religion comes into play here as well, because a lot of people will stay because of the commitment they made to God. And I had a patient tell me that this week, that I said, you know, for 30 years, he talked about um, his sexless marriage. And he said, basically, that at the beginning, um, they, they had actually never had sex. Both of them had been married before, but they had never had sex with each other prior to the wedding. His wife's first husband left, um, he, he'd had an affair, and so that marriage split up. So that, that's a sign that that may have been, may have been, not necessarily a sexless marriage. That's, that's often um, a bit of a sign if a guy goes looking for sex outside of the marriage. Um, but it may or may not have been. But he said when he was with his wife at first, uh, when they first consummated the relationship after the wedding, he said she white-knuckled it which could mean a whole lot of things. I didn't know exactly what he, I didn't get too deep into this because um, white knuckling it could mean that uh, she was experiencing sexual pain, like a sexual pain disorder, like vaginismus, which is like a feeling of a spasm, or it is a spasm upon entry of a tampon or a penis into the vagina. Um, it could have been stress. Uh, it could have been fear. It it could have been um a history of sexual abuse or, or trauma um, that could have been any one of a number of reasons, but this hasn't been resolved after excessive counseling. These issues have not been resolved. And, and is it fair to impose fidelity on a person who is deprived of sex from their spouse? And when that spouse has an affair, must we call it cheating or is it merely survival? But I asked this gentleman, I am curious, why have you stayed for 30 years? And his answer was he, he'd made a commitment to, in the eyes of God, and I said, wouldn't God expect you to be your God, expect you to be happy um, in in your marriage? And this has caused great stress in the marriage. Now, there are other issues in the marriage as well. There are a number of other issues also. But uh, some people believe on some level that they can have a marriage but not have any sex. And, you know, that they seem to think that that's okay. About 44% of people, of women, sorry, according to the Preside study, have low sexual desire. And only 12% of that crew are bothered by it. 
That's disturbing. But there are women who are bothered by this. And believe you me, women are not the only ones with low sexual desire. I hear, I've heard so many reports from women who have told me that the men in their lives have no sexual desire and they haven't touched them for years. And it's actually more devastating for a woman to be rejected by her male partner than it is for a man to be rejected by a a woman because it's a little bit more socially acceptable that women have low desire. You know, women are frigid, all these things. There's so much. It's a complex issue. Women are poorly educated around sex and and around sexual pleasure. And, And one of the most profound things apparently that I've ever said is sex is for you too, ladies. It's for you to enjoy. And, and so many women view it as a chore they view it as, uh, you know, they're so busy, they're working, and they say this, I'm so busy, I'm so tired, I'm, or they're no longer attracted to their male partner, maybe he's grown a bit of a paunch, um, but they know that they can't look to the next 20, 30 years sexless um, because, you know, it, it evokes anger in their partner, it causes um, problems in the relationship, the children see this. Uh, there may be excessive pornography, ex- chronic masturbation. Infidelity is a risk of a sexless marriage. And I, I know I kind of lean toward that, but that's what I see most frequently in my clinical practice. But you know, in marriage, after marriage, people do change. And changes can happen because of circumstances. Um, you know, things that you're initially attracted to somebody about, maybe they're funny and carefree. Um, and then, uh, what, you know, they may change and then they may decide to go to graduate school. And you, then you see a serious side of a person that you really hadn't bargained for. Or, um, you know, what initially attracts us may someday annoy us. And that is significant. You know, it could be somebody um, who is, you know, just a a blast, has so much fun, is, you know, lighthearted and nothing really matters. And then you get married and have a couple of kids and they continue to be lighthearted and fun. Nothing really matters. And they maybe don't pay the bills and they don't really feel like disciplining the children or whatever. And so that can annoy us. And so you, you don't think that, um, your Prince Charming could actually, uh, turn to be, you know, somebody that actually drives you, crazy. Um, so, you know, things around organization, messiness, that type of thing, you know, they may change, uh, the person that you're in love with may change different things. And, you know, you have to, um, reframe your thinking sometimes. Um, we often attach our ego to our partner and, you know, sometimes, especially around the word marrying up. And in this, in the past, this would typically mean we marry somebody who's a higher socioeconomic class. Um, but we, if we feel we're in a relationship with somebody who is successful and attractive, it may reflect better on us. Um, but it doesn't actually matter. You know, at the end of the day, when the doors are closed, the lights are out, it doesn't actually matter. So, You know, there are certain things to expect um, in a marriage, and I think that's why um, sometimes people are not as happy in the marriage. It's so exciting at the beginning, but you're not going to be happy every day. You're not going to be free from doubt. Um, You know, you cannot make your uh, spouse your exclusive source of happiness. You have to find other ways to be happy. You know, your lives intertwine. 
um, and, you know, or parts of them overlap, but it's not that two people become one. That's not healthy at all. And a marriage, like a house, is a living, breathing entity. And, you know, the person that you might say I do to will not be in the same person that you wake up to 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. Anyway, so important things to think about with marriage. And um, remember, when you say I do, it doesn't mean I do everything. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. We're celebrating moms tonight. But, you know, uh, many moms or women who want to be moms or many women struggle on this day. Uh, Many women who experience infertility, um, struggling with the ability to conceive or carry a baby to term, uh, their hearts may be broken today. Uh, Women who have lost their moms, that's a club nobody wants to belong to. Uh, It can be, uh, especially if it's been recent, it can be an extremely tough day uh, for those women as well. So it's not all celebration. Of course, we know that around the world. Um, This can be a very challenging day for a lot of women. So my heart goes out to you um, tonight if you are struggling with anything in particular, which is also why I think it's really important that women support other women. And if you have a great story about how a woman supported you as a mom, uh, I'd love you to call me 604-280-9898 or 1-877-399- 9898. In the meantime, I'll tell you one of the most bizarre ways of support I ever received from a woman. Um, It had been about two weeks since I had heard from the headmaster at my child's school. And I literally had the thought in my head, fantastic, I haven't heard from the headmaster for two weeks. No sooner did I have that thought, did the phone ring. And the headmaster, in his panicked South African accent, said, Thank God he's alive. Thank God he is alive. Thank God he's alive. And I said, Well, if he is still alive, I can tell I am going to kill him. As it turned out, my child had, um, <clears throat> during recess <laughs> of all times, um, found himself in a drain, uh, you know, a drain that um, where the rushing waters of the mountain um you know, came rushing through. And it was like a probably a 10 foot in diameter, four inches thick, heavy metal drain. Um, Extremely dangerous, needless to say. Um, And so they were panicked. I think they were afraid I was going to sue them. But nonetheless, I focused more on the child. Um, The only bright spot in that was that when um, he, there were other boys that were in the drain as well with him, but they had the wherewithal to get out when the teacher came. (laughs) Which that doesn't sound good as a mother either. But nonetheless, I used to say to my son, must you get caught at everything you do? And he'd say, that's brilliant. What? A, that's a novel idea. Yeah, just give me a break every now and again. So anyway, they brought him into the headmaster's office and they said, who else was in the drain with you? And he wouldn't tell. You look for bright spots in these moments. And I thought, fantastic. My son is not thinking on his friends. So that's a good thing. But the best part of the whole story was um, after he was retrieved from the drain, the next day a mom called me. And she said, and I was embarrassed, of course, like, 
<laughs> like it's your child always doing these things. And and so she called and I just thought, oh, you know, I can't even handle this call. But she said, you know, I want to call and I'm so sorry about what happened to your son yesterday. What happened to my son? He did it himself. Anyhow, she said, I there's not enough playground equipment <laughs> at the school. And I'd like to use your son as an example to get more playground equipment there so that the kids don't have to be going into drains to entertain themselves. And I thought, you go right ahead. Are you kidding me? I actually thought, is she on crack or what? Um, but I have to say, I loved her support. I've never forgotten it. And I think it was, uh, I think they actually did, because they were so afraid of lawsuits, they did actually improve the um, recess as a result of my child. Um, and the nine other boys who will never, whose names will never be exposed, uh, not under my watch anyway. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome. You know, you don't think of this fallout of the opioid crisis, but babies are addicted to drugs. They are addicted to heroin when they are born or methadone. They can be addicted to alcohol. They can withdraw from those that can lead to poor intrauterine growth, premature birth, seizures, birth defects. Uh, specific drugs sometimes cause specific problems and uh, like heroin and other opiates, including methadone can or methadose can cause significant withdrawal in the baby with some symptoms lasting as long as four to six months. These na- babies need to be held. They need to be cuddled. They need to be skin to skin. They need to have so much um, care and attention. They have tremors, irritability, sleep problems, a high-pitched cry, tight muscle tone. It's the tightest muscle tone. I've held these babies. Hyperactive reflexes, seizures, yawning, stuffy nose, and sneezing, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, sweating, fever, or unstable temperatures. Premature babies may have a lower risk of withdrawal symptoms or have less severe symptoms and may recover more quickly, but premature babies also come with a whole host of potential medical problems as well. So this is something to consider uh, when we think about the opioid crisis in this country. We are not just affecting the families or the people with the substance use and abuse issues. This is also affecting babies who haven't been born yet. Um, and the neonatal abstinence syndrome is a diagnosis. It's uh, important that you know the mom's drug use. And, um, and I say, as I say, it's um, uh, lots of care and comfort and hugging and cuddling. And, uh, and it's a very, very sad syndrome. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. We're in the final strokes of the program. Listen, being a mom is not easy. You know what? Life is hard sometimes. We can get over busy. We can get distracted. We might feel that our intention span is that of a gnat. Uh, We can also have issues with being happy or our happiness quotient. And uh, moms can get down and can be pessimistic, especially if they're having issues with their kids. They may not sleep well. Uh, We have lots of problems, lots of balls that we're juggling in the air sometimes. And, you know, meditation is increasingly becoming a popular way of dealing with issues. And I'm very happy to have on the line with me, Renee Rechschaffner of InwardMeditation.com. Hello, Renee. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for joining me on the program. 
Yeah, special day today. I wanted to give a shout out to all the mums out there, Aww. far and wide. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much. Um, so you are a, uh, and happy Mother's Day to you as well. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay. We've got all that out of the way. Um, <laughs> we're all in recovery yeah. from motherhood, but anyway. Um, so tell me, what is meditation? Well, meditation and mindfulness are skills. Um, they're a practice. Uh, living mindfully, it's a slowing down. Uh, moment-to-moment awareness as your life unfolds. Your your life is a series of moments, so making the most of them and then really not judging that and just being fully awake to, to your life. Now, many moms might live in the past or they might live in the future or or their lives might be rushing past them. Yeah, that's that's the busyness of being a mom, right? You're You're on the go, you're busy, checklist, to-do list, go, go, go. You're actually doing, but you're not being. You're not being in the moment. Interesting. And the last person on the mom's list is often the mom herself, correct? Yes. She's doing for everybody else, type E personality, everything to everybody. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's part of the nurturing quality of being a mom, I think, you know, putting everyone before yourself and... Uh, that's an easy way to get burnt out. One of the things that I really um, talk to my clients about is is putting themselves first, nurturing themselves first, and then they can be no- more nurturing once they've honored and taken and taken time for themselves. Because many many moms approach this motherhood thing quite seriously. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, they take it as a serious uh, venture um, instead of you know really seeing the humor in all of it. But um, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I like that, uh, Maureen. I think you know it should be fun, right? You should be enjoying your life. It it shouldn't be so serious. I, you know, when you're when you're doing all those chores and you're. Um, you know, interacting with your kids, make it fun and create those memories for them. And and so how can moms who are finding themselves really stressed out about this, this, you know, maybe they're not good at multitasking, maybe they're going from one thing to the next, maybe they are looking to have a better career. Um, how can meditation help to perhaps improve their cognitive function? And, and what would they have to do? Like a, a lot of people will say, I'm, I'm not good at it. I don't know how to do it. So how do you do meditation? How do you do mindfulness? Um, well, meditation is, is really, uh, you know, it, like I said, it's a practice. So it's taking time for yourself to, to slow down and be still, to find, to go really go inward and um, to block off some time for yourself to to just sit in stillness the the power of the mind and your thoughts um want to take control they want to occupy your day and so if you don't kind of fight against that and say actually i'm i'm just going to sit down and and be silent and um go inward into my body so being being when you're in your body you're more present in your life when you're in your mind, you're you're in your future, you're in the past, you're rushing ahead, you're again, you're in this sort of doing mode versus being mode. So 
Meditation now, is really honoring yourself and, and, and making time uh, to be still and to be quiet. Now, do you have to sit in any weird um, yoga poses or anything like that? Or, <laughs> <laughs> or any particular pillows or have incense burning? Like, is this just another task for moms? <laughs> oh, I know that's, um, you know, what what uh, the thing is, is people say, how can, you know, it's just one, you're asking me to do one more thing, but um with mindfulness, um, you can be mindful, you know, instead of seeing waiting, we, we have a lot of moments in our day when we, we seem to be waiting, whether it's in the line, you know, at Starbucks or you're at the doctor's office waiting. Instead of um, thinking of it as a negative thing, you might go, okay, great, you know, this will give me a moment to just maybe shut my eyes and take a few deep breaths and, and bring myself into the present moment and uh, just just be calm, right, and breathe. And it, it's been shown to promote better sleep and more positive thinking, uh, meditation slash mindfulness. We're kind of viewing them as, as the same thing. Um, and it can also help to improve creativity and problem-solving as well. So it's extremely beneficial. There's a lot more science uh, behind this than some of the other things, and it's free. But a lot of people will say, oh, I can't do mindfulness because my mind wanders. Is that okay if somebody's mind wanders? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we all have thoughts. You're, you will never, you know, stop having thoughts. So thoughts are okay in meditation. Um, being kind to yourself is, is important. Don't think that you're doing it wrong. Um, it's, it is quite easy. It's also very natural. You um, make time. It, you can, you know, light the incense, get the pillows, um, create a ritual around that so it becomes a signal to your body. Oh, I'm going to slow down now and I'm going to just sit with myself and uh, it, the thoughts will come and I, I will recognize that they're there, but I'll release them and let them go. And then I will focus on my breath. Um, so you're following your breath in your body and your mind just keeps returning to the breath. It's like the anchor and the thoughts come and go. You don't, um, follow the thought. You just acknowledge it's there and release it and go back to being in your body. When you're in your body, you're in the present moment. If you're in your mind, you're somewhere else. You're not living your life in the present moment. Right. My mother used to say that she was going to, when she, she would go and air her brains. <laughs> I imagine she was going off, <laughs> air her brain, go, going off to um, meditate or, or be mindful. Um, but that's uh, excellent information. And you actually train people in the art of meditation and mindfulness. And Yes, I do. And I am. Uh... I've been doing workshops and I work also, I, I have a session every Tuesday at the Hope Center, which is a wing of the mental health at the hospital. So there's a group that comes in and we just practice uh, meditating. And this is, some, this is a daily practice that people should be doing this daily to want to improve their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you... You know, I don't. I encourage people to just start with whatever works. So if it's just going to be a minute, then it's a minute. It's the it's the idea that you get started and you do it. So if you set yourself up for one minute in a day, and then 
maybe the next day you do two minutes, or if you're still struggling with the one minute, stick with the one minute until Mm -hmm. you're ready to move up. And uh, eventually you want to get to 20 minutes and you want to get to that um, in about two weeks, you'll see the benefits. You will really begin to see those things that you mentioned, like better sleep, improved focus. Um, It's good also for your health in terms of improved immunity and um, lower blood pressure and things like that. So it's, it's incredible, really. Excellent. I'm going to take on the challenge and I'm going to do it daily for two weeks. Um, oh, good, Maureen. Yeah. I want to hear the results. I'm going to let you know. Absolutely. And uh, you also do Skype consults, which I think is important for people because we have listeners in Calgary and Edmonton and yes, I uh, do. Winnipeg. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that would be, um, they can go to my website, um, inwardmeditation.com, or they can reach me by email, inwardmeditation at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Renee. It's excellent information for busy moms and beyond out there. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You can always email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com anytime if you have any questions at all about uh, love, life, your health, relationship, whatever. Um, I want to talk about uh, normal loss of desire versus sexual aversion disorder. I talk about a lot about normal loss of desire, and there are many times in a woman's life when she will lose sexual desire, and it's it's very normal as well. It can happen during menopause. It can happen directly after the birth of a child, before or during menstruation or recovery from an illness or surgery, a major uh, stressful event or the death of a loved one, job loss, retirement, divorce, basically any stressful uh, situation can lead to low sexual desire. Being a mother, I'm kidding. Um, So also, um, you know, this is uh, just as typical, it can be expected, depression, fatigue, they're also contributing factors to lessening in sexual interest. But there's something called sexual aversion disorder, and that is a much stronger dislike. That's, you know, low sexual desire isn't necessarily a dislike of sex, but it's, um, you know, it's not feeling like having sex, but sexual aversion disorder is a strong dislike and active avoidance of sexual activity. Uh, And it's more so than the normal ups and downs that is low sexual desire. It is characterized not only by a lack of desire, but also by fear, revulsion, disgust, or similar emotions when the person with the disorder engages in genital contact with a partner. And this aversion can take a number of different forms, and it may be related to specific aspects of sexual intercourse, such as the sight of the partner's genitals or the smell of his or her body secretions, or it may include kissing, hugging, petting, and intercourse itself. Uh, It can happen to men and or women. The first case I had seen was about 14 years ago, and it was a young woman around 30, the age of 30. She had grown up with a mother who was a gambling addict, and they had actually lost their house and the mother would come in late in the night um, with, you know, drinking and um, she would come in with various men and the girl would hear um, the sex going on of her mother in the next room. And um, she, interestingly enough, her mother had an alcohol problem and her mother had a gambling addiction. And interestingly enough, she married a man who um, owned a casino type bar type of place. So, you know, we go to what, uh, what we're comfortable with, uh, sometimes, um, 
in some of the cases of sexual aversion disorder, uh, those people may avoid any form of sexual contact, however, are not upset by kissing and caressing and are able to proceed normally until genital contact occurs. So that can be the, the significant aspect of it. There are many subclassifications. It can be lifelong, always present, or it can be acquired after a traumatic incident. Uh, experience. It can be situational um, and it can be generalized occurring with any uh, partner and in all situations. It can also be caused by psychological factors or a combination of physical and psychological factors. And there are a number of causes. The most common are interpersonal problems in the relationship and traumatic experiences. There can be unhappiness in the relationship with the the discovery of uh, in infidelity, major disagreements over money or family roles. There could be domestic violence. And these traumatic experiences are typically caused sort of the generalized variety. Also, some possible traumas such as rape, incest, molestation, or other forms of sexual abuse also are risk factors for sexual aversion disorder. Both men and women, as I said, can experience sexual aversion disorder. It's more common in women than men, possibly because it is tied to um, more violence. More women are likely to be victims of rape and other forms of sexual assault. Uh, It's difficult to ascertain the percentage uh, or the incidence of this because it's a difficult subject to discuss. There are normal fluctuations in desire that are associated with life stress. But uh, the diagnosis of sexual aversion disorder is typically made when the affected person or his or her partner mentions the problem itself or the dissatisfaction with the relationship to their doctor, gynecologist, psychologist, psychiatrist. And, of course, you'll need to have a physical exam, a full physical exam, both partners, in fact, to rule out any other physical causes of the affected person, rule out STIs, sexually transmitted infections, any physical deformities, or lack of personal cleanliness, because that can actually be um, a cause of sexual aversion disorder. And this actually can be treated, um, but you want to treat the underlying cause. Um, And it's usually a course of psychotherapy for the psychological conditions that may be causing the problem, or it can be marriage counseling or couples counseling can be appropriate if the disorder concerns the spouse. There are some medications that can be used to treat symptoms that may be associated with sexual aversion disorder like panic attacks. So sometimes an an SSRI might be prescribed if it's causing particular distress for the person or in the relationship. Um, And so there's, you know, this, the treatment, especially um, if it's addressed from a psychological standpoint, uh, if it is a psychological disorder, treatment can be very successful. The thing is, there are so many treatments for so many of these issues. And I want to move on to um, another um, situation that you may not um, think about, because we think about think of them as healers, and they do such great work, but it is really a service industry to be you are part of a service industry if you are a physician. And physician suicide rate is the highest of any profession. I was quite surprised to hear that one doctor commits suicide in the U.S. every day. It's the highest suicide rate of any profession. And the number of doctor suicides, 28 to 40 per 100,000, is more than twice that of the general population. And the, rela- the rate in the general population is 12.3 per 100,000. Doctors who die by suicide often have untreated or undertreated depression 
or may be suffering from another mental illness. And this fact underscores the need for early diagnosis, treatment, and dare I say, reduction of the stigma that is still associated with mental illness. This is, this is a sobering statistic for me. These findings were presented recently at the American Psychiatric Association meeting. Uh, they also uh, spoke, uh, there's a little bit of a gender divide here, and female physicians attempt suicide far less often than women in the general population, but their completion rate exceeds that of the general population by 2.5 to 4 times, and it also equals the completion rate of male doctors. It's hard to understand why these rates are so high, but some of the most common reasons are, as I said, mood disorders, so depression, alcoholism, substance use and abuse. These are high-stress jobs. You have to talk about being everything to everybody and having to know everything, um, and that's where this um, intellectual humility comes into place. Uh, doctors can be... Uh, guilty of that, you know, feeling that they uh, have to answer, you know, have to give everything. They have to know everything. And there are benefits of admitting something when you don't know. You need to disagree with yourself every now and again in life because it can be impacting your personal and professional relationship. It's, it's, uh, there's, has been, there have been studies done at the University of Toronto, um, in fact, about intellectual humility. And when they, when they actually did these studies, and we're running out of time, so I can't really review the type of study that it was done, but they found the more intellectually humble students were, uh, the, more hum, the more intellectually humble students were, the more motivated they were to learn and more likely to use effective metacognitive strategies like quizzing themselves to check their own understanding. So humility is a good thing. Being humble can help you to be uh, better and more engaged in your relationship and can help you to be perceived better at work. And you know what? It's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Or maybe I got that wrong. There's nothing wrong with that because you can, of course, butt heads against somebody else um, when you act like you know everything. And you know what? Nobody knows everything except me, of course, and Andrew. He's the other one, too. The two of us together, we know it all. Andrew, thank you so much for another bang-up show. <laughs> really appreciate your help, especially with our new phone lines. And uh, if you want to go to my website, it's backtothebedroom.ca. Follow me on Twitter, at back, the number two, the bedroom. Keep the dial right where it is. My friend Drex is coming on right after me for The Shift. And that's uh, a great program. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.